what does the legacy of Gardner-Taylor teach other preachers and Christian leaders? Jared Alcantara is Associate Professor of Preaching at Baylor's Truett Theological Seminary. We sat down to talk about two books, one titled Learning from a Legend, What Gardner C. Taylor Can Teach Us About Preaching, and the other, Crossover Preaching, Improvisational Intercultural Homiletics and Conversation with Gardner C. Taylor. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Jared, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. So we're going to spend some time today talking about Gardner Taylor, um, his life and legacy, and what that means for preachers and other Christians. So can you help us get to know him a little bit? Why is he such an important figure? Well, I'll tell you a little bit more about Gardner Taylor and uh, why he is such an important figure. Uh, The first time I heard his name was growing up here in New Jersey. I had heard about his preaching and uh, he did have a reputation that preceded him. And I think as I reflect back on my childhood, there were probably some neighbors or friends who uh, mentioned him by name and that they had heard him preach. Uh, but I wasn't that familiar with him, uh, even though he served at a church in Brooklyn, New York, that was 75 miles from where I grew up. I just knew of him, but didn't know much about him. It wasn't until seminary, really, that one of my professors said, you should really study the preaching of Gardner Taylor if you're going to study preaching. And this particular professor had gone to a revival meeting uh, at uh, a city in Ohio and was on the same platform as Dr. Taylor and had heard him preach in person and had met him. So it wasn't really till graduate school that I got to know Dr. Taylor's preaching ministry better. Uh, by then he was retired, but uh, he had left a, a great legacy at the church in Brooklyn. It's called Concord Baptist Church of, uh, of New York and had served there for 42 years. And over those 42 years, and even before then, uh, had established himself as one of the leading preachers, I, I would argue, of the 20th century. Not as well known as other preachers, but a significant, significant voice in preaching. Grew up, He grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, in the black church, black Baptist churches, and uh, established himself in um, churches in Ohio and Louisiana, and then ended up in New York for many years and was highly respected among African-American preachers, and then also highly respected among some of the leading white preachers in New York and in other places in the country. Time Magazine called him the Dean of the Nation's Black Preachers. And Ebony Magazine uh, voted him usually, you know, their leading preacher uh, in in, uh, black preaching. So I uh, was introduced to him. I I didn't grow up in the black church. Um, My father's Latino, my mother's white. Uh, We grew up in a predominantly going to a predominantly white church, but in seminary and after seminary, uh, just listening to his preaching, reading his preaching, uh, ended up doing a a THM, theological master's degree, in which I could go deeper into his preaching and get to know know it better. Um, Now, in uh, the second decade of the 21st century, there are very, uh, there's a lot of people who don't know enough about him. And I know that through the work that I've done on him, through the conversations I've had with people who know him, or who knew him, I should say, since he passed away in 2015, there's a whole generation that, that needs to get to know him better. And that's really exciting to me. So when you started listening to his sermons and yes. reading his sermons, what was it about them that was compelling or made him seem like such a pivotal figure? Well, there were a few things. Um, 
One of his nicknames was the Poet Laureate of the Pulpit. So his ability to uh, use artful language, that was really exciting to me. Conviction, the passion behind the preaching, uh, the ways that I was moved and inspired and spiritually nourished by it. I think part of what drew me also was that uh, I wanted to be a better preacher whenever I listened to him preach, whether that was on audio or watched him on video. I would also say, and this gets a little bit into the work that I did, that I was really uh, impressed and amazed by his ability to preach in multiple contexts, constituencies, ecclesially diverse places. So the fact that he could preach in so many different places and be heard, be well-received, highly respected and appreciated, that was, in particular, that was especially curious to me because of um, what I felt like was a a gift that he had. Yeah. So are there some themes that you think were especially important to him um, that you picked up through studying his sermons and his work? Well, yes. Uh, a few themes come to mind. I remember being impressed with his focus on preaching being what empowers ministry in so many other ways. So he always saw preaching as the lightning rod or the catalytic force that would empower congregations to do the will and work of God in the world. And so that, uh, that regard for preaching, that sense of uh, the power of preaching to affect change. And by change, I mean not only change among individuals where their souls are changed, but change in communities, change in educational inequalities, change uh, in the world. And so he really did believe that and, uh, and talked about that, not only in his sermons, but also in his lectures on preaching. Also, uh, his prophetic voice, his commitment to justice. And so he would not only preach about justice, but he would pursue justice. Uh, So he was on the New York City School Board of Education uh, trying to advocate for, for a closing of educational disparities. He wanted there to be educational equality in this particular case for, uh, for African-American children in his own community. He was also a force and cause uh, for justice in, in the civil rights era, so supported Dr. King's work in the South and would raise money for that work and for um, work in the denomination uh, to see uh, positive change happen for African-Americans in that turbulent era of the 50s and 60s, but to also uh, find ways in which he could collaborate, partner, and bring about positive things in the work that he was doing. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit about if you can name some concrete ways that learning more about him has transformed your own preaching Mm. or maybe if it's transformed disciplines that you have as a preacher that you've developed? Hmm. Great question. When I, when I wrote my first book on Taylor, I was writing uh, a book that was coming out of my dissertation. When I wrote my second book on Taylor, it had more to do with the question you're asking. What are some concrete, practical uh, lessons that we can learn. In fact, the book's called Learning from a Legend, What Gardner Taylor Can Teach Us About Preaching. And part of why I wanted to write that book was the first book was much more for an academic audience, for a guild, for, uh, it was much more theoretical. It 
read sort of like a dissertation. Dissertations lend themselves to that sort of <laughs> that sort of writing. That's right. Which has its place. Yes, of course, of course. And I wanted to make sure that uh, the work of Gardner Taylor was uh, not only appreciated but recognized and and appreciated in academic circles. But with the second book, I really wanted to address what are lessons I have learned, what are lessons that preachers could learn, and that was for a much wider audience. Uh, and I, I got into a couple of different areas in terms of lessons. I uh, mentioned the lesson of uh, pain, that often uh, the pain that we experience in ministry can be a force for um, for our ministry to actually grow and flourish, even if it doesn't feel like it ever will. Uh, so the pain can actually bring about the brokenness that we experience through pain in our own lives or in the lives of people close to us or people who, who, uh, who we know and love in the congregation, that, uh, it can actually, that brokenness can actually make us more able and willing to, to follow wherever God wants to take us. Can you think of an example where you've seen that in his life and work? That kind of drove that home for you about the place of pain? Yes, yes. So when I wrote that chapter on pain, uh, it was interacting with his own story. Uh, He grew up in Jim Crow era segregation in the South. His grandparents were former slaves. Uh, Many of the people in his congregation growing up had been former slaves. Uh, People, not necessarily people close to him, but his family knew families that where a member of the family had been lynched. Moving into his adulthood, you know, he, he, there was a cost to standing up for civil rights. He, he was uh, imprisoned several times uh, for standing up against educational abuses in New York. Uh, his first wife, Laura Scott Taylor, was uh, hit by a bus and was tragically killed uh, shortly after his retirement from Concord Baptist. Uh, and then his second wife, Phyllis Taylor, uh, several years uh, later, after he remarried, was his home was burglarized, and uh, someone who was addicted to drugs, who need who needed and wanted money, hit her with uh, like a cable box uh, because he wanted to try to get money from her and and beat her up pretty bad, and so she needed several different surgeries in order to repair her eye. Uh, so when Taylor talks about pain, he's experienced it. Uh, he's experienced loss, uh, heartache, sorrow, and that comes through not only in his preaching, but it comes through in his lectures on preaching. Uh, and when he says that pain can somehow bring about uh, good, he's not just speaking in the abstract; he's speaking from experience. Uh, so one of the one of the arguments that I make in that second book, Learning from a Legend is that uh, not only can Gardner, not only does Gardner Taylor teach us this, but as we reflect on our own ministries, there's ways to, to reframe the heartache and the, the loss and the sorrow that we've experienced. There's ways to reframe it in such a way that we uh, see how it can actually make us, well, make us more godly people, make us better preachers, uh, help our ministries to somehow through that pain, uh, be used as a force for good in people's lives. Yeah. Do you have a story like that of your own, if you'd be willing to share? Well, in ministry, uh, there's ministry and then there's uh, family. I think in ministry, um, those who, uh, who have 
experience this. Uh, there are some calls that are more difficult than others uh, when you're serving churches, and I won't say which call uh, was the most difficult that I had to face. But there was one particular call at a church where um, it became evident to me early on that this was going to be very difficult. And so there's the obvious things like dealing with criticism, but then there's also other things like if uh, you have leaders in a congregation that um, see it as their responsibility to work against you rather than with you, uh, who uh, instead of being helpful uh, end up even if it's unbeknownst to them, even if they're not conscious of this, could be just causing a lot of dissension and creating a lot of problems, not only for you as a leader, but creating a lot of problems for everyone because of mm-hmm. undealt with hurt or broken. You know, just the, Some of it's just being human. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was one particular call at a particular church where just felt like years of hardship. Felt like uh, there's that story of Elijah... Uh, being led to the Kareth Ravine, and he receives food from ravens and water from a brook, but then eventually the brook dries up, and it feels like, okay, what, what's going to happen next? Uh, so sometimes in ministry, the brook dries up, and you have that feeling of like, well, okay, God, what's next? I, I'm not sure where to get some water, but I need yeah. some water right now. Yeah. Uh, so I so I think of that experience. Um, you know, we've had losses in our own in our own family one of my uh, sisters lost a, a newborn uh, after just a couple of days of, of life uh, and during those times it can just be really hard to certainly hard to get up and preach when you just feel overwhelmed and overcome by so much sorrow which is uh, kind of where you should be exper- yes. experiencing those things. But. Right, right. And part of what Dr. Taylor's point is, which I, which I so resonate with uh, based on even my own life experiences, is that not only uh, will God show up, but God can minister deeply to those who have been hurt, mm-hmm. which is almost everyone in some form or another. So, so it instead of are the weight of our sorrow becoming an obstacle uh, can actually become a bridge for those who hear us uh, so that so that God ministers to them in and through uh, the solidarity that they feel with us and in, in our own heart on our own hurt and heartbreak So one of the things that you said earlier in the interview that was really interesting is how he was able to to preach broadly in very different contexts to very different groups of people. So can you talk a little bit about that and why you think that that was possible? When I wrote the first book, Crossover Preaching, uh, what I was trying to articulate or observe in that work was that here in Dr. Taylor, you had someone who could navigate across racial, ethnic, ecclesial, even national differences, uh, because he preached all over the world. He preached on six continents. And what I discovered was that he was highly respected in uh, black church contexts and uh, could preach in those contexts very effectively and was was looked at as a, as a father figure in those uh, those contexts. And then he could preach in predominantly white contexts. He could preach in international contexts. And that really piqued my curiosity, got me, got me interested. 
uh, in learning more about how exactly he could do that. So what I what I came to see was that there was this ability to be improvisational and an ability to be interculturally proficient. So those were the two proficiencies, improvisational proficiency and intercultural proficiency. Can you define those? Yes. Well, with improvisational proficiency, I I, I don't want to get too right. too heady or Briefly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'll be yeah. brief. But with improvisational proficiency, I looked at it in two ways. Uh, that just like an improvisational musician, he could improvise in his preaching uh, so that there might be a melody, but he could riff on the melody. Mm-hmm. And then also with improvisational proficiency, I talked about how that was a, a fertile metaphor to talk about how he navigated race and ethnicity, which we may end up talking about a little bit later. Uh, so that was improvisational proficiency was basically an, an ability to, not just with respect to uh, his own social location, but also with respect to the sermon itself, engage in, in improvisational moves. So you have the sermon as prepared, the sermon as preached, and then even the sermon as published, and those were three different hmm. things. Yeah. And he could preach the same text and virtually the same sermon, but because he was in a different context, he could improvise in that context, and it would sound different depending on where he was. Uh, So he was still uniquely who he was. He didn't change who he was. It's just that he was able to improvise based on where he was. Uh, With intercultural proficiency, I think the maybe the short way to define that would be... um, recognizing cultural beliefs and values and how they're different in one place as compared to another place Mm -hmm. and being able to adjust accordingly. So in in different racial, ethnic, ecclesial contexts, uh, having a sense of attunement to those differences in cultural beliefs and values, uh, someone who's attuned to those things is able to kind of like to use the metaphor of turning the dials on the radio. It makes me sound old. Uh, <laughs> but when you turn the dials on the radio, if you're driving down a highway or an interstate and you move into a new city, you turn the dials in such a way that it's the right frequency. Right. So someone who's interculturally proficient knows how to tune the dials and say and says, I, OK, I'm here in this place now in order for me to be heard. I need to tune the dials to this station uh, so that people can hear me and so that I can hear people. Yeah. Sounds like what's involved in both of those types of proficiency is paying attention and having yes. some level of agility, which yes. I imagine is something that that there can be a growing edge to that. It's not all inherent, right? Some of that must be developed through practice, right? Yes, yes. Actually, in some of the interviews that Taylor gave, he said that uh, his earliest training in race relations was on a playground in Baton Rouge, yeah. uh, which very, which was very different from a lot of places in Louisiana in that, for some reason in Baton Rouge, there was much more integration across races and ethnicities mm-hmm. uh, and even nationalities. He said he, he played with kids from different countries, played with white kids. Uh, there, there, there was more of a consciousness of racism when he got older. But yes, he himself said that some of his learning took place long before he was a pastor and a preacher. Uh, he went to Oberlin School of Theology, part of Oberlin College, and there were only a few African Americans at that seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to, uh, he had challenges in this, in the sense that Many of his white professors were completely oblivious to, to the black church and to experiences in the black church. 
But at the same time, he also felt like his interactions with white seminarians uh, prepared him for a future with other white pastors and white preachers in New York City. And so it, it wasn't taking place, um, or these things uh, were preparing him for that improvisational and intercultural proficiency. So he was, he was building it long before uh, it was expressed in a very public, well-known way. Yeah. It'd be interesting to reflect with other pastors about what they learned about ministry on the playground. <laughs> right. I imagine a lot of people have stories about that. Sure. <laughs> Things sure, they absolutely. picked up along the way. <laughs> so can we shift gears? Sure. I'd love to hear you talk about the role or the place of race and ethnicity in preaching, mm. whether that's a reflection on your own or, or if it's a more kind of techn- technical reflection. Yes, yes. Well... Uh, I I was hired at my first position by a dean from Burkina Faso named Tite Tianu. And uh, he retired from the deanship. But I, I remember early on in my interactions with him, he said to me, as he said to so many, he said, Jared, so often our theologies are our veiled autobiographies. And I resonate with that deeply, or sometimes we're aware of that and sometimes we're not, of how much our own story shapes our theological framing. In, in my case, I really see the connections and will continue to, to see them, I hope, in the future. But the connection that I see, and I think part of why I was drawn to Taylor at the beginning, at the very beginning, was, was of course, that he's a phenomenal preacher, but also that I personally have experienced what it's like to be in lots of different racial and ethnic contexts. Mm -hmm. My father's from Honduras. My mother is white. Um, While I was in seminary, uh, so we grew up going to a predominantly white church, as I said earlier, but also had lots of experience in Latino churches growing up. Uh, In college and seminary, had some experiences worshiping in black churches. And... Uh, now, as a pastor and as a preacher, have preached in lots of different uh, spaces that are sometimes predominantly white. Sometimes I preach in Spanish in Latino congregations. Sometimes I'm preaching in black churches. And so uh, seeing that Taylor could do that so well was part of what drew me to him at the very beginning. Now, when it comes to the role of race and ethnicity in preaching... Um, I believe that it's important for every preacher to uh, have cultural awareness and to grow intercultural competence. Uh, Not only is it important just for our own health and ministry, uh, it's important for the future of the church. So as churches become more, um, hopefully, Lord willing, in the future, become more diverse, more intercultural, uh, the the onus really is on those who lead them to have that proficiency, to be self-aware culturally, and to be able to navigate cross-culturally. Otherwise, we'll not only be stepping on landmines, but we'll be stepping on each other and creating all kinds of offenses that are really unnecessary. So it requires us as preachers, it requires us as leaders, whether we lead nonprofits or lead in other capacities, it requires us to uh, do what, what some cultural theorists call a critical cultural self-study, 
to say, okay, I am coming out of a particular race, a particular ethnicity, a particular nationality, a particular uh, socioeconomic background, which then shapes my way of, of interpreting the world, interpreting texts as well. Mm-hmm. So there are ways that that helps me see things that others might not see. And then there are ways that that probably hinders me from seeing things that others will see. How do we do that? I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it, obviously. Beat me to my next question. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, how do we do that? Well, one of the things Dr. Taylor did was obviously build relationships with people who were either culturally or racially different than he was. And those were meaningful relationships, not token relationships. He not only uh, was willing to go into spaces that were racially or culturally different spaces than his own, but he was willing to welcome others into his own spaces. And so it was not just about going into other spaces. It was also about showing hospitality to others in his own space. I would also argue that, uh, that there are ways that we can even do it practically. I mean, there's lots of resources on cultural intelligence, Uh, And some of those resources allow you to take assessment tests in which you are able to take what's underneath the surface and start exposing, okay, some of these things are culturally situated beliefs and values rather than Mm non-negotiables. So doing some of that, I would say, autobiographical work where you start saying, okay, what is my story and how does my story shape the way I see the world, positively and negatively? And then in what ways might my own race or ethnicity help or inhibit me from being the preacher that God has called me to be? Yeah. So it sounds like the work of kind of marrying this sort of self-reflection and increasing a self-awareness with the role of a Christian leader and mm-hmm. the way in which you navigate a system and a group of people and, and attempt to lead them. Yes. My guess is that involves a lot of humility, too. It does. It requires a willingness to to recognize that we don't have all the answers, uh, a willingness to interrogate our own social location, a willingness to name uh, name cultural or racial uh, superiority, if that's a, an issue that we're dealing with. Uh, did I mention national superiority, too? I, and that often comes along with cultural superiority. And some, in some instances, there are uh, ways that our mind has been colonized. Uh, so in what ways do we need to interrogate that? Or there, there might be feelings of cultural inferiority or racial inferiority or national inferiority or ethnic inferiority. Uh, so working on processing that, recognizing, especially if we preach in diverse congregations, that even if we think we're preaching clearly, we might not be. And we might be actually saying the opposite of what we think we're saying to one constituency in our congregation uh, or to all of them. So sometimes that ability to listen, to remain humble, to decenter, to assess, to maybe be a little freer as well, a little more improvisational than we are now. Some of us might be uh, stuck on the way we've always done things. Uh, when what could be could what we could maybe push ourselves toward is, is a greater willingness to be reflexive and improvisational. 
And if the preaching moment, as you said earlier, is this kind of catalytic moment for a congregation, yes. it makes that work really significant, of course, to be able to speak into that moment with, with attentiveness to the context and your own, all the stuff you bring to the table with you as a preacher. Right? Mm-hmm. So I just have one last question. Yes. Who inspires your work? It's a great question. Well, the, the, the quick answer is Gardner Taylor, mm-hmm. uh, because I just have loved hearing him preach, reading about him, reading his sermons, reading his lectures on preaching. Part of why I chose him as a dissertation topic was not just my academic interest, but I felt like I could grow in my own preaching and that it nourished my soul. So that's the that's the fast answer. I would also say, as I've worked with students, watching students get better at preaching and then watching students graduate and uh, seeing them thrive and flourish in preaching. Mm-hmm. Sometimes my students are people who've already graduated, you know, a doctor of ministry program or a training in a church or what have you, and uh, seeing people who love preaching, love to talk about preaching, love to work on preaching, and interacting with them on a regular basis. That's just really, really exciting and energizing to me in my work in teaching. I'd say in my work in preaching, um, whenever I'm out preaching in churches these days, I find myself saying to myself, why am I not pastoring again? You know, I pastored (laughs) for all those years before the dissertation. And now, uh, even during the dissertation, I was pastoring and so now I'm an itinerant, and I'm seeing that it's different to preach to people who you don't know, to preach yeah. to people who aren't in your congregation. And it's it's important. You know, sometimes pastors need a day off, or pastors are doing a doctor of ministry program, or pastors are in a family crisis. And so I can serve in those ways, and I'm happy to serve in those ways. Uh, but I would just say that in in the vocational call of preaching, seeing people's lives uh, blessed, enriched, nourished, and, uh, and, and even transformed through preaching, uh, seeing a community uh, catalyzed, you use that word catalytic, seeing a community catalyzed through the event of preaching uh, is so satisfying and exciting and inspiring. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds, and by Sherry Osteen. Our producer is Ni Otto Abrams. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.